Hans Christian Andersen brought us the story of swindlers. Swindlers that knew there was one who was gullible in their midst. The swindlers, as the story unfolds, worked all night, but no one had the courage to stand to the emperor and say what was really going on. When the day of the big reveal finally came, the swindlers said, If your imperial majesty will condescend to take your clothes off, we will help you on with your new ones here in front of the long mirror. The emperor undressed, and the swindlers pretended to put his new clothes on him, one garment after another. They took him around the waist and seemed to be fastening something that was his train. As the emperor turned round and round before the looking glass, how well your majesty's new clothes look, aren't they becoming, they said. He heard on all sides, the pattern so perfect, those colors so suitable. It is a magnificent outfit. Then the minister of public processions announced, Your majesty's canopy is waiting outside. Well, I suppose, I'm supposed to be ready, the emperor said, and turned again for one last look in the mirror. It is a remarkable fit, isn't it? He seemed to regard his costume with the greatest interest. The noblemen who were to carry his train stooped low and reached for the floor as if they were picking up his mantle. Then they pretended to lift and hold it high. They didn't dare admit they had nothing to hold. So off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy. Everyone in the streets and the windows said, Oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes? Don't they fit him to perfection? And see his long train. Nobody, nobody would confess that he couldn't see anything. For that would either prove him unfit for his position or a fool. No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a complete success. But he hasn't got anything on, said a little child. Did you ever hear such innocent prattle, said the child's father. And one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't... He hasn't anything on. A child says he hasn't anything on. But he hasn't anything on. The whole town cried out at last. The emperor shivered. He suspected they were right. But he thought, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. 
Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Turn with me, if you would, and stand as we hear God's word read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs and look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. Give us, Father, eyes to see, robes that are really rags. By your grace, reveal to us, like the little child did to the emperor, that we've been swindled, that we have no clothes apart from you. Grant us ears that we may hear, eyes that we may see, and hearts that we may understand. As always, God, we pray for the one who preaches. Forgive him his sins, for they are many. Our desire is that we would see Jesus in him only, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. I'll one day grow into adult fiction again. Right now, my library consists of The Emperor's New Clothes, Hansel and Gretel, and maybe a Dogman book or two. The elementary parents know what I'm talking about. It's a sad world. What do we see in this text? We see Paul grappling with what's getting ready to infect, if it hasn't already, the church. A sense that what Jesus did wasn't enough. And so we have to boast in something more in order to get God's attention, gain God's approval, and live in God's good graces. So we're going to talk about 
the repeated warnings that Paul's giving the church, the rags that Paul mistook for a robe, the robe worth more than any rag, and what it all means for us as God's people of the resurrection. All right? You ready? To pack a lunch? Only slightly kidding. Only slightly. Let's go. Um, So for Paul, there was nothing, nothing more important, nothing more central, nothing more essential than the purity, the clarity, and the centrality of the announcement, the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And it was in this and only this that there was any hope at all for humanity to have life with God. It was in this and only this that we have God's revelation of his heart towards us. And it is this and nowhere else that we find our life and our help and our hope. And if you get one single little thing wrong, it is catastrophic. All right? How many of you remember chemistry? Okay, good. What's CO2? Carbon dioxide. Fish really like that. So do plants. What if you drop the two and it just becomes CO? Carbon monoxide. Is that any good anymore? No. You ought to have a detector in your house to detect carbon monoxide because it's a silent killer. If you get one element of the gospel missing or wrong, it becomes just as lethal as that oxygen molecule missing from that chemical equation. It becomes a silent killer. And so Paul was looking out for his church Because when you get one element of the gospel wrong, it is no longer the gracious announcement of who Jesus is and what God has done to rescue and save his people and to declare them as righteous in his sight and adopted as his own. When you get one element of the gospel wrong, it becomes a crushing, life-sucking thing where there is a weight of our own uncertainty and neurosis of wondering if God is still happy with me today. It's no longer a message of what God has done to reach us. It becomes instead a message of what what we must do in order to reach God. Now, after an exhortation to rejoice in the Lord, again, the letter of joy, Philippians, and as we've discussed, joy is a little bit deeper, a little bit more um, nuanced than maybe just happy as we've discussed many times over, um, Paul seemingly abruptly switches his tactics and his techniques into a new train of thought. Verse 2, Paul is now no longer mincing words. The gloves are off. Look out for the dogs. Now, um, when Paul thinks about the dogs, he is not thinking about the cute Pomeranian that gets packaged in a satchel and is an emotional support Pomeranian that goes on the airplane with you. What Paul's thinking about is what dogs were in the ancient Near East. They were not domesticated. They were not pets. They were not one of the family. They were not fur babies. 
They were mongrels. They were scavengers. They were street hounds. They would feast on whatever filth they could get their jowls around. If you wanted to be kosher, you didn't pet a dog because those dogs would make you unclean in a heartbeat. So in the New Testament then, dogs became uh, symbolic of those who were unworthy to receive holy things. I mean, think about it. Dogs feasted on pollution. They, had, they were by no means kosher. And it was the same with the Judaizers, advocating on the outside a kosher diet, keeping up with God's law and his statutes, and yet they were filled with pollution on the inside. Paul portrays them here as doing nothing more than feasting on trash. They were doers of the law, practicing the right things, and yet they were called evildoers. Why? Because they wanted to impose circumcision on the Gentiles, but not as a way of pointing to Christ, but instead as a way of still being pure. They had turned that surgery instead into cruel mutilation, verse 2, Paul says. Watch out for the dogs, evildoers. And look out for those who would mutilate the flesh. It was significant because the pagans of the ancient Near East would mutilate their bodies. They would mutilate their flesh in order to try and get the attention of the dead, dumb gods and say, look at me. Paul compares the Judaizers, those that would say, but you still have to be circumcised as no better than the pagans who would call out to the enemies of the God of Israel. Those are strong words. Those are attention-grabbing words. Now, was Paul overreacting? Was he... um, Was he making mountains out of molehills? I mean, after all, right? What's wrong with a little motivation, right? I mean, God does the big stuff, puts us in charge of the little stuff. What's so wrong with that? I mean, after all, Ben Franklin, God helps those who help themselves, right? Maybe poor Richard's Almanac. By the way, that's poor Richard's Almanac. That's not in the Bible. Maybe Ben Franklin was on to something. I mean, after all, if you want to take away poor Richard's almanac and instead look at the Bible, right? The Bible says it talks about rewards. It talks about good stewardship. It talks about working hard, about soldiering on, about grinding it out, about doing your best. I mean, isn't there the parable of the talents where what we do with the initial capital that we were given matters and the one who just sat back and did nothing was called a wicked servant? You see, here's the deal, friends. This is why preaching the good news of Jesus is scandalous. And I need you to hear me right now, okay? Listen, it is, the good news of Jesus is, it is what Jesus has done by his work alone that secures your place with the heart of the Father and provides your righteousness. 
It is what Jesus has done. And this, this cuts the legs out of a pursuit of holiness that would be driven either by nervous uncertainty of have I been good enough or ambitious overconfidence of look at what all I have done. So what's going to motivate us if it isn't guilt or pride? And do you see it? Maybe those of you that have been around the church for a little while have experienced it. This whole, well, God does the big stuff, but you better knuckle down and do the little stuff or God's going to be pretty mad at you. Can I just tell you, especially, I know we have some folks visiting and whatever. Like, here's the deal. If you're in Christ, God isn't mad at you. He poured it out on Jesus. And if your motivation is born somewhere out of thinking that you've got to work hard, try hard, so that God won't be mad at you anymore, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible, you're worshiping an idol of your own making, and idols of our own making are exactly that. They're dead, worthless, can't save us, can't do anything for us. Now, Paul says that it's only the truly circumcised. And he goes on in verse 3 and says what that is. For we, Paul says, we who are the ones who are part of the sect of Jesus, we are the ones who are part of the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That is both what we can do, the marks that our bodies bear. There's no confidence that we put anywhere in there because it is solely, only, truly what God has done through Jesus. And that is the circumcision of the heart that matters. Because the attention that, or the, the sacrifice, the mutilation of the flesh that got God's attention was what God did to his son on the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, he wasn't kidding. Now, who worship, those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh are the ones who are safe and secure. They are the ones who have their standing before God safe and secure. So this, of course, is designed to make us ask ourselves the question, in what do I boast and in what do I place my confidence? In whom do I glory and boast? Now, I've... Um, I've been working this week um, with some friends trying to work out some diagnostic questions for myself and for them so that we can kind of um, take stock of our own heart in the middle of the day and figure out where I am, what's going on, and uh, how I'm doing. Let me tell you about the, uh, the challenge about sermons like this. The challenge with sermons that cover the same ground that we've heard before is because many of us think that what I'm trying to do up here is convey to you facts to stick in between your ears. And you say, but I know it's only a Jesus. Here's what I'm concerned about, though. I don't want to know what you know. I want to see how you live. I want to know moment by moment where you functionally 
our boasting. My interest is in taking these familiar concepts and driving them to the depths of our heart. I want these sermons to provide a forum for diagnosis, for self-reflection. I challenged you two weeks ago to consider the waltz of the gospel um, as a dance for our lives, a a paradigm um, where we repent and we believe and fight and then we start over again. And in this way, this dance becomes the dance of our lives because we are loved by God. We can therefore obey and our obedience is motivated by the rock solid belief that God is well pleased with us as he ever will be because of what Jesus has done. And we receive that with grateful hearts by faith. And because God is fully satisfied with his son, he is now fully satisfied with us. So now today that you've had a few weeks to ruminate on that idea, I want to try and connect concept to heart. Because what we're going to try to do this morning is to see um, Paul's description of those who are truly circumcised to answer, uh, to force ourselves to answer this question. In what do I rest my confidence? In what or in whom do I glory or boast? And this is the challenge. I do not want your Sunday school answer. I do not care that you know the right answer. That does not matter to me one bit. Well, it does a little bit. That's an overstatement. It does matter to me that you know. But I want you to know that you know. And that means getting these 18 inches connected to one another. I'm not interested in what you tell the preacher when he asks you this question. And you know you better get the right answer or you're going to get a talking to answer. I'm interested in the daily, the functional. It could change and be different um, depending on the day of the week or what you had for dinner. I'm interested in the life lived on the ground where you really struggle answer. I'm interested because all of us, beneath our humility, beneath our accomplishments, beneath our insecurities, in the secret places of our hearts, we seek some level of comfort in what makes us us, that gives us identity, that gives us significance. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's something other than Jesus. So dear friends, listen to me. The preacher isn't going to help you. The Sunday school answer isn't going to help you. It's only if you're willing to be honest and contemplative this morning that the Spirit can meet you in your need, assure you of your standing, and help you to live in light of your identity of Jesus. So can we talk for just a second? Here are Paul's rags mistaken for a robe. I want you to look. uh, We're just going to kind of fly over this um, resume that Paul gives out. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And I want you to follow with me, verses 5, because I'm just going to kind of highlight the points that he hits. Listen to what he says. His fundamental point is there are two ways that we can try and get right with God. Through credentials or through Christ. Through what I've done or what Jesus has done. So Paul's going to share how he was rescued from the first route. Okay? It was his autobiography of how someone said, you're not wearing any clothes, that he was rescued. Paul's embrace of the gospel is not because um, he flunked out of Harvard and had to get a degree at a community college, and now he's just mad and acting out of sour grapes. 
Paul went to all the schools. He went to Harvard. He went to MIT. He got a, a PhD from Oxford. If you want to know whether he had it or not, he did. He was the best of the best, the cream of the crop. But he also is concerned that the Gentile believers, that they know that there is something far greater and far superior than anything else they could stake their identity in. So Paul, listen to what he says first. He offers elements of his pedigree that we might be prone to dismiss. Listen to what he says. Listen to me. Because here in the West, we pay precious little attention to how our family, our upbringing, and our circumstances control and dictate the rest of our lives. If you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he does a fascinating job of pointing out how Steve Jobs couldn't have been Steve Jobs unless he was born at that family, at that time, in the midst of those circumstances, as the wave of Silicon Valley was just starting to pick up. So what does Paul do? Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. How many of those things that Paul listed off are things that Paul could achieve, control, or do on his own? I'm waiting. Right. Paul had no control over any of those things. His circumstances were part of his resume that enabled him to succeed, that enabled him to be where he was, that enabled him to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of the church. Did he choose his circumcision? No. Did he choose his ancestry? No. His tribe? No. His parents' commitment to maintain their Hebrew language and customs? No. But they all contributed inextricably to his status and stature in society. But in addition to all the advantages that Paul's upbringing afforded him, and by the way, another sermon for another day is how we continue to dismiss that not only do certain people have certain advantages because of the family that they were born into, certain people have certain disadvantages because of the family that they were born into as well. But that's another sermon for another day. Let's keep going. He was committed, as best he could understand it, to the Lord and to the law. He maintained his party affiliation with the Pharisees, the party that adhered precisely to the written commands of Moses, all 613 of them. They counted. As well as to the Midrash, the oral tradition as well. And in order to make sure the disruptive message that the temple was expendable and that a criminal was God's righteous one, he proceeded to do whatever must be done to eradicate the Jesus sect. So he persecuted the church. So Paul came from the right heritage and brought his own exemplary personal effort. And all of this converged ultimately in his confidence in his own flesh as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That doesn't mean that he would have seen himself as sinless, but rather that he had so strenuously and uprightly pursued all of God's laws that he would be seen functionally as blameless. So dear ones, where are you functionally blameless? Where are you functionally blameless? Not because you are, but because when you compare yourself to others, you are so, so far and away better and more put together. How is your diet better or your housekeeping or your parenting or your organizational skills or your marriage or your work-life balance? 
your insight into the ills of the world, your education, your job, maybe it's your maturity in Christ, or your tithe check, or your family's ability to budget, your social media feed, your temperance, your patience, your courage, your love, the way you appear meek and humble when others are brash and loud, where you, where do you smile smugly internally and thank God that you're not like the other more blatant sinners in the world? Because all of us, whatever the details are, wherever you feel like you're better or perceive yourself better than others, you may have, you may never voice that. You may never mention that. You may never share that. But when the chips are down, you secretly feel better about yourself because at least you aren't the worst and you're hoping God grades on a curve. It's all the ways that we try to ease our uneasy conscience through our best efforts. Because remember, friends, in a pack of animals being chased by the lion, you don't have to be the fastest, you just don't have to be last. As long as you're better than someone else, you feel pretty good about yourself. Here's the thing. You are. I am the emperor with no clothes. We're boasting in the finest of threads, in the finest of linens. But not only is our covering not what you think it is, it isn't there at all. So why is it that we take comfort there? Why is it that we, we, we continue to go to these places where instead of Jesus, it's something else that we use to make ourselves feel better and say, well, at least I'm not like the publican over there, the sinner over there. I said publican, not another word. I said the sinner over there, the one who is standing before God beating his chest. At least I've got my life together. Why do we do this? Because the same thing that infected Paul is the same thing that infected you and the same thing that infected me. When it all is said and done, we feel like we're okay enough and God should just go ahead and deal with the real problems in the world. When in fact, the real problem in the world is like what G.K. Chesterton wrote to the newspaper when they said, what is the biggest problem in the world? And he said, dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. If you can't walk out of here today saying, I am the one that's the biggest problem in this world, you have rested something else. Um, you have rested your righteousness in something else. Because you're saying, well, I'm not as bad as. Well, we just lost the conversation thread, didn't we? And we all do it, don't we? You don't have to amen that. I already know it's true. So what happened to Paul? Look at verse 7. There's a robe more valuable than rags. Verse 7, Paul stops the whole train. The worthlessness of it all was exposed to him in one blinding light. In verses 7 through 8, his religious credentials were worthless. Every deposit was empty. In fact, every deposit he thought was he was making was in fact making the account worse. And all the fruit that he thought he was cultivating was in fact rancid, worthless, rotting, rubbish. Well, he didn't say rubbish. Exactly. The King James gets it closer. The King James says dung. So kids, if ever you want to um, know a church word that lets you say a swear in Greek, I get a laugh from over here. <laughs> I'm going to look at who that was. <laughs> Scubala. Scubala. It is excrement of the body. And Paul 
wanted to make it crystal clear just how scuba he thought of his own rags. They were rubbish. Paul says that my rags, whatever I had gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubala in order that I might gain Christ. He says that his resume, his pet achievements, that he would derive his comfort from are worthless dung. And his previous credentials, worse than rubbish, they are repellent as compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Upon knowing Christ, Paul gave away everything else, his reputation, his self-respect, his standing in the community, his comfort, his safety, his security, in order that he might instead gain Christ, be found in him, know him, This is what made it all worth it. He did it once. He would do it again. He would do it every day, every moment for the rest of his life so that he could instead lay hold of the one and only treasure that matters or more rightly be taken hold of by the one and only treasure that matters, Jesus himself. Paul was justified. The confession says justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ given to us, imputed to us, and received by faith alone. When Jesus grabbed Paul, Jesus had done more than just say, you're okay, you're good, just feel a little better about yourself. Jesus took Paul's filth and gave Paul faith. He took Paul's curse and condemnation and gave him instead his own crown. He took Paul's rubbish and gave him his righteousness. He took Paul's shame and gave him salvation. But I want you to see that the treasure that Paul is clinging to here, it's not the benefits of Christ. It's not the gifts of Christ. It's not what Jesus can do for you today. He's clinging to Jesus himself. Verse 8. I count all as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. A little bit further, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, having a righteousness that comes through faith in him. Verse 10, that I may know him and his sufferings and become like him. It's not what Jesus can do for him, it's Jesus himself. Paul wasn't satisfied with the gifts of Jesus or the benefits of Jesus. He would be satisfied with nothing short of Jesus himself. Because you know why? We were designed for fellowship that we only find in union with Jesus. Nothing else, nothing else will satisfy us. Nothing else will substitute for us. So how about you? How about you? Can you say that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead? Why would you want to do that? Because of what Jesus has done. 
because of what Jesus has done by his death on the cross. For those who put their faith and their hope and their trust in him, Jesus has paid the penalty and taken our punishment from our sin. So the punishment of our sin has been paid for by Jesus' work on the cross. By his spirit poured out of us in the, in the present, we are being freed from the power of sin in our lives. And when that glorious day comes, when we attain the resurrection of the dead, the presence of sin will be no more. But these are not gifts that Jesus gives us and then wanders off to go do something more important. He gives those gifts to us as he himself dispenses them through his spirit because he deeply cares for us and is very delighted with us. And so even though following Jesus was an invitation to heed a death sentence, Paul was delighted to do so because if sharing in his sufferings was the way to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, then that's where Paul wanted to go. And he can go there because he knows that because the tomb is empty, there is life. Jesus is the one who has tasted death. You and I, death is in our final home. How's that? Because Jesus is the one that bore the swindlers who wove a garment, just like the emperor. But instead of you and I going through the emperor's canopy to suffer the shame and the reproach of being found a mockery, being found naked, being found exposed and vulnerable and weak, Jesus did it for you. And he went to the cross for you. And he died for you. And he rose for you. And so the question today is not, do you believe that? The question for you today is, what are you functionally believing instead? And when that lump rises in your throat, when you see what you've been clinging to instead, do you know who's waiting for you with open arms? Because he gave you his robe. And you're righteous in his sight. It's Jesus. You can come to him today. You can say, I'm sorry. And he says, I know. You're forgiven. If you don't know him, know him today. Know what it means to know that nothing you're doing will ever get God's attention in the way you think it will. That it's only Jesus and life is found in him. <laughs>